Hello, and welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. This is your host, Eric Sufer. My guest on today's episode is Mikowai Barchentovich. Mikowai is a law professor and the research director of the Law and Technology Hub at the University of Surrey in the United Kingdom. He has research affiliations with the University of Oxford and the Stanford Law School. Mikowai is a returning guest to the Mobile Dev Memo podcast, and this episode can be seen as somewhat of a continuation of the conversation that we had in the last episode of the podcast, in which we covered recent GDPR and e-privacy directive enforcement actions in the EU and enforcement going forward. I received a tremendous amount of positive feedback on that episode, and I encourage anyone who hasn't yet to listen to it. In this episode of the podcast, Mikawai and I discussed the relevant portions of EU law that we didn't have time for in the last episode, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, both of which will go into effect soon. In our conversation, we cover the scope of each law, the use cases regulated by each law, and the specific impact that each law will have on the digital advertising ecosystem. We also talk about the challenging task of enforcing these laws and the use case impacts beyond advertising. And at the outset of the conversation, we briefly cover two current issues in digital advertising and EU privacy law. First, Meta's reaction to the Irish DPC's determination earlier this year that its use of the contractual necessity basis for processing user data in advertising personalization is a violation of the GDPR. And second, the Italian privacy regulator's decision, published late last week, that it will not allow OpenAI to process the data of Italian data subjects in chat GPT. Please enjoy this conversation with Mikowai Barcentovich. Mikowai, thank you very much for joining me again on the Mobile Dev Memo podcast. Our last episode was very well received, got some, some really positive feedback on that. And in that episode, we went so deep into a lot of GDPR and e-privacy directive stuff that we didn't get to the DMA and the DSA, which are two very, very large important looming topics related to European digital privacy. And so uh, I was very, I'm very happy to, to have you back on to discuss those topics. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to say about uh, the novel issues in EU law. Great. So I want to get to DMA and DSA, and that'll be the bulk of the episode. But before we do, there have been some updates from the topics that we discussed last time. So they're kind of two big ones. They both erupted, I guess, the latter half of last week. So I was, I was traveling. The first is a little bit more clarity with respect to how Meta plans to adapt to this rule or adapted services to this ruling from the Irish DPC, which said that it can no longer use the contractual necessity legal basis for processing user data for the purposes of advertising targeting. So first of all, did I get that right? And then if I did, what actually is this? What what did they announce? You're right that um, according to that Irish decision, Meta cannot rely on um, contractual necessity. And we speculated a bit what uh, what will Meta try to do now about their lawful basis for, for, for data processing. And we now know that they want to replace contractual necessity, actually not just one, they announced that they will as of, I think, fifth of April, Wednesday, that they will start using legitimate interest. They they said, unsurprisingly, that uh, they believe contractual necessity was fine, but because of that decision, they are switching to legitimate interest, which they also think is fine. But uh, as we said uh, during our previous conversation, there are some risks with doing that. And, and it's not a strategy that many other 
data processors uh, and choose to uh, just to uh, to use uh, these days. And we talked about the experience with TikTok along those lines, right? So TikTok, just as a brief reminder, so TikTok tried to shift the legal basis in Europe away from contractual necessity to legitimate interest. They had an opt-in consent pop-up. When we're discussing this, we're only talking about the use of first-party data. We're only talking about the usage of data that is derived from the direct interaction with the product. We're not talking about third party at all, right? This is entirely scoped to first party. But TikTok had a consent prompt. I guess they wanted to get rid of it that asked the user, the consent prompt asked the user if they would allow for their first party data to be used for for ads targeting. So TikTok wanted to get rid of this prompt. They attempted or they they announced that they would change their terms to rely on legitimate interest and not contractual necessity. And they were told, they were nudged you know, by some DPAs to recognize that if they made that change, it would be challenged. Is that roughly correct? Yes. So it was uh, primarily the Italian uh, authority, the Italian DPA, uh, GPDP, uh, who officially objected to TikTok's plan. Which is a nice segue into the next topic that we'll touch on briefly. But I just, I want to hang out there for a second because I think yes. um, that poses an interesting question. So if TikTok announced that they would do this, and then they ultimately abandoned that change, right? They ultimately abandoned the idea of use, trying to use legitimate interest as the legal basis for processing this data. Why would Facebook succeed? Why would Meta succeed? Why could Meta succeed here where, where TikTok couldn't? Is, is there a very clear reason why? So the, uh, TikTok, uh, the, the problem uh, uh, with the Ita- Italian authority was not just under the GDPR, there was also the e-privacy directive angle, which doesn't, uh, contemplate uh, a, such a lawful basis as, as legitimate interest of the data processor. There, if so, under the e-privacy directive, if you store information or gain access to information stored in the terminal equipment of a user, so for example, on a user's phone or, or computer, then you need to ask for their consent. So perhaps Meta. Um, uh, Things they, they found a way around that that they, that they don't store or g- gain access to to that information that they don't have this e privacy um, uh, problem and under but under the GDPR uh, what the Italian authority note uh, noted was that um, legitimate interest has two um, limitations so one is that you cannot use legit- your legitimate interest as a data processor. If that uh, if this interest is overridden by more important interests of the data subject, and there is that uh, tension, and and there's there seems to be some hostility. So Max Schrems's organization, Noib, uh, they they already published a press release, and uh, and and they see uh, they say unsurprisingly that they believe that um, targeted advertising is these uses of of personal data that just cannot be justified by legitimate interest in this balancing test. And then there was another problem, which uh, which uh, which was also an issue for TikTok, which was that you cannot uh, process special category data. And so data revealing racial or ethnic origin and so on, sexual orientation uh, based on legitimate interest. So if, uh, uh, so if someone uh, could uh, argue that meta processes or just cannot avoid processing this special category data, 
or that there is this issue of balancing and and it's uh, and and that uh, just doesn't work for the reason of, of balancing of uh, their interest versus user rights, then um, then legitimate interest w- wouldn't work here. And and I, I'm uh, I'm ex- half expecting. I think it's very likely that some national uh, authorities in Europe, like perhaps the Italian authority, DPA, the Italian DPA, will uh, try to to use that interpretation. Uh, against Meta, so so I'm, uh, I, I, we may see some litigation on this point as well. Okay, so let me see if I can read that back to you. Meta may have found a, we don't know, right? This, this is just pure speculation. But the reason Meta may be taking choosing this path, where they saw TikTok be unsuccessful on it, is that they may have developed some kind of mechanism for not actually reading or writing any data to the user's terminal. They, they might not actually have to read or write data directly from the user's phone. And that may relieve them of that, of the e-privacy directive applicability here, right? Because e-privacy directive only allows for consent. There is no legitimate interest. And so they may have relieved that applicability through some sort of like novel application of technology. We'll just wait and see. So if that's true, well, then, okay, that that's one difference. That's potentially one difference. But then they still face the specter of having the personalized advertising use case be interrogated under the auspices of legitimate interest. And, and we just have no idea how that would be resolved. There's no real precedent for that yet. Is that correct? It looks like it. And... Uh, what we do know is that there seems to be clear hostility against sure. using legitimate interests uh, from some national DPAs. So um, we'll probably hear more about this soon. All right. So segueing into the next kind of brief update here before we get into the to the meat from Italian DPA objecting to TikTok's use of legitimate interest to now news last week that the Italian DPA, the guarantee, I don't know how to pronounce it, has basically intervened with open in the case of OpenAI's chat GPT. And they've said that this system, this program may not use Italian residents uh, data. They may not use the data from Italian citizens. Talk to me a little bit about that, because th- this is still like a little bit unclear. I think this just pertains to the data that they use to train the models. Right. And they had you know published this press release and they said, look, you have to come into compliance, otherwise there's a whole fee schedule. But can you just talk to me briefly about that? Because it's, it's very new, but I think it would be good to sort of clear up some of the confusion. So what we can read in, in that decision from the Italian DPA is that, uh, as, you, as you said, they focused on collection of personal data and processing for the purpose of training the model uh, used by um, ChatGPT. So it's not specifically about the processing that is being done uh, by ChatGPT operating now, but it's about the training process. And that, that's why all the reasons they give for it. So, for, for example, they say that uh, there is a violation of the principle of lawfulness because the um, uh, OpenAI didn't state a lawful basis for processing personal data for it. There is a violation of the principle of accuracy, although that's interesting because uh, here, um, the authority seems to be uh, um, looking at uh, chat GPT now giving inaccurate answers uh, and using that as a reason to say that there, was, there is a violation of the principle of accuracy regarding uh, personal data. 
but they also talk about the right to be informed. But again, this is a right to be informed regarding this processing for uh, for training purposes. And um, so, so yeah, so they think at least prima facie this is a violation, and that's why they use their um, power under Article Fifty Eight of, of, of GDPR to impose a temporary limitation on, on data processing. But uh, and it, but uh, yes, that's meant to be related to to that to the uh, model training um, exercise. I mean, obviously, this will be litigated, and we'll get just a, a sharper sense of how these new technologies will be regulated. At a high level, my belief is that we are kind of entering a, a new world here. There are probably ways to completely foreclose upon these types of technologies from operating, right? Using existing privacy law. And, and the question is basically, how does it get applied, right? And, and to your point earlier, I mean, there are some DPAs that seem to have a, a, a stricter interpretation of the GDPR than other DPAs. And, and I guess what what is your sense for how this plays out? Because it seems like this could get very chaotic. There are many questions here, right? Because you could theoretically imagine a, a training process, even perhaps for a very large language model, uh, where you could try to filter out, so not ingest personal data. But but whether you can do that really depends on how do you understand the definition of personal data, because. If you understand it very broadly, then actually it might not be possible to uh, to have a training process for a large language model that avoids using personal data. And then you have to, uh, at least it seems that under the GDPR, then you, then you have all those uh, GDPR um, uh, requirements. So that's that's one aspect. But, but there's also the other aspect that once you train your model, can you also train it in such a way that even if you start with personal data, you do not end up with a model that uh, constitutes processing of personal data because uh, you've uh, broken the link, de-identified the data in such a way that it cannot be realistically re-identified. And that's, that's also a, a technical question about the development of those models, because um, if you could do it, um, then that, that uh, should address uh, the, uh, most of the, or all of the GDPR concerns, but again, whether you can do it, it's part, only partly a technical question, and, and to a large uh, extent, it's a legal question because it depends not just on the technicalities, but also on how do you define personal data and how do you define the anonymization uh, or the identification uh, that makes personal data or, well, something that used to, you know, consider. Con um, include personal data, uh, not include personal data anymore, right? And and here, I think uh, we touched on this uh, last time, that uh, some national DPAs, they, they do seem to have this interpretation of, of GDPR, which is based not on the standard of what's realistically, uh, what realistically can be re-identified, but on a, so the standard of almost theoretical possibility that if you throw at it you know billion dollar billions of dollars and and it's just uh, someone else not even you has another data set that if you combine with the data set you have then you can re-identify things well then that's all personal data and then the gdpr applies so so that's the problem it's both a negotiation on in terms of uh, technology, but also in terms of law and its application. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, buck, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, I want to move into the the kind of headline topics here today, which are the the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. Both of those were passed into law last year. They will go into effect this year, but I think the restrictions start applying in 2024. Let's just start there. What is the Digital Markets Act and what is the Digital Services Act? So they all started as uh, as a one general legislative idea. The it was clear that the European Commission and the European Parliament they wanted to do to do something about uh, tech and uh, and now uh, now uh, after uh, passing the uh, the DSA and the DMA there was a there was an, an sort of a victory announcement by, from the European Commission they said that there will be a before and an after to the DSA and the DMA many thought that regulation would take years would be impossible, too complicated, the lobbying too strong. But, uh, so that's a quote from the European Commission. So what, what do they think they, uh, they achieved with those pieces of legislation? Um, and the DSA, so from the original sort of set of ideas that, that were divided into two separate pieces of legislation, the DSA, um, the headline version is that it ensures a safe and accountable online environment, whereas the DMA is meant to ensure fair and open digital markets. So the DMA is, sounds more like competition, con, uh, concerned competition-focused regulation, whereas the DSA is more like more about online content uh, um, and uh, sort of illegal content online and content moderation and some some related issues. Got it. And can you talk briefly? I found this fascinating, you know, understanding this when these two pieces of legislation were being negotiated. But can you just talk to me briefly about the trilogue negotiation process? I am just amazed that anything can ever make it out of that. <laughs> that seems like a crucible. But just could you talk, talk to me? How, how does a bill become a law in the EU? So in the case of those two, uh, and, uh, and generally that's the way that the European Commission, which is the executive uh, government of, of the European Union, uh, and they also, uh, they have the technical capacity and the political mandate to propose new laws, which often happens uh, after a resolution, like general political resolution from the European Parliament, and we had such res- resolutions in this case. So so usually the Parliament or the national governments, they, uh, they may have some ideas, the Commission has some ideas, and then the Commission prepares, say, after a consultation process, they prepare some uh, a draft this draft then uh, is uh, being con- uh, considered both by the european parliament where we have directly elected uh, members of the european parliament from each of the eu countries and uh, every draft proposed by, by uh, not every draft but uh, um, so, uh, of, often those drafts are also considered by the european uh, uh, council or just the council, and the council is uh, is not directly elected. It's just a representation of national governments from each of the member states. So we have three parts of that process. There's the European Commission, uh, so they are the ones who draft uh, proposals, uh, and then there's uh, the European Parliament, so the elected representatives, and then uh, the governments of... Uh, so it's almost like you would have... Uh, uh, government uh, or representatives of, of state governors um, deciding on legislation in, in Congress. So, so, and the process of, of, of trilogues uh, involves 
um, partly open but mostly closed behind behind closed doors negotiations of the representatives uh, of those three institutions uh, and they go through several rounds and um, and uh, much of this is really hidden sometimes we have leaks uh, and uh, when there is a piece of legislation which uh, receives so much uh, media attention like uh, like for example the dma the dsa or the ai act then then we, we have more leaks but uh, uh, but often for EU legislation, it's really all in uh, in, in uh, obscurity. But uh, but uh, not all not all pieces of legislation uh, succeed this way because sometimes disagreements are are too large between institutions, or there's just not enough political will or legislative time to deal with them. But in this case, it was a success from the perspective of just getting it done. And uh, and after several rounds of le uh, negotiations, um, we ended up with a final text. The final text was adopted by uh, by the European Parliament and uh, by the Council, and, and that's how we end up with uh, with the law, uh, two laws in this case, the two regulations. Got it. So the DMA is related to competitive issues, right? I think some of the the kind of our specific takeaways from that, like if you look at specific instances in the digital economy where there's been acrimony or there's been a claim of, of unfairness, that's cases like, you know, a platform operator also competing with the companies that sell products in its, in its app store, right? That's one example, right? So there's also a lot of issues there around forcing interoperability across services, right? So if the platform operator runs some kind of service, then they have to make that those sort of like APIs and, and the underlying whatever the, the underlying machinery available to companies that also make a similar service on the platform, right? And then the, the DSA was, as you said, related to kind of like data transparency and then sort of content moderation transparency, right? That's that's kind of roughly how I think about them. Is that is that correct? I, I think that's roughly correct. Okay. So I had written an article right after the DSA became law and I talked about how this how the DSA would apply to, to digital ads. Um, you sent me some kind of helpful information today about how the DMA applies to ads. I'm going to get to that later. But first, I, I, I want to talk about this, the interoperability mandate, because I think that certainly was what got the most purchase on Twitter around this legislation, about how impossible that would be to implement, and also about, you know, what it could mean for uh, the prospects of end-to-end -end encryption. So what kind of trade-offs with respect to security will need to be made in order to make these messaging services interoperable, right? So that's that's kind of the court case there was messaging, right? So on the iPhone, for instance, you have iMessage, and then, you know, the issue with the DMA is, well, the iMessage have to be interoperable with Facebook chat or with WhatsApp or with Signal or Telegram. Talk to me about that because there's there's real questions there about what sort of security sacrifices you'd have to make in order to allow for that. So one thing that we should mention about both the DMA and the DSA is that at least some of their rules are only applied to certain kinds of entities. Uh, sure. So so those special entities in the DSA are, are called very large online platforms, and in the DMA they are called the gatekeepers. So uh, so we don't know which companies are going to be designated as gatekeepers. Like there are several uh, presumptions. One is that if you have 45 million active uh, end users in the EU, and uh, so that's one issue. And and of course, not every service uh, can can fall under this. So. Uh, so it has to be the uh, so-called core platform service, and uh, that includes social media, web browsers, online advertising services. So, so that's the, that's a general thing that 
everything needs to be uh, understood about the DNA. And when it comes to interoperability, so that was one of the um, uh, most heated debates during the legislative process um, for the DNA. And there were, uh, what we have in the end is not the maximalist um, version of, of this provision because there, there were ideas of having just a general interoperability requirement for all sorts of services which uh, uh, which ended up being limited and now we have this article 7 of, of, of the DMA which only provides for interoperability of, uh, this is the name is very clunky, number independent interpersonal communication services. So those number independent services are not uh, you know, telephony services where you, where you have a phone number, but uh, WhatsApp, iMessage and so on. But of course the question is whether uh, whether in any of those services will reach the, um, the threshold of being a gatekeeper, but uh, since I'm not aware of what's, what are the exact numbers, but I'm guessing it may probably happen to iMessage or WhatsApp. So, so I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't know that uh, for sure, but, uh, but uh, let's assume just for this conversation that we're talking about iMessage and, and WhatsApp. So we have two, um, two different services which are not interoperating right now. But the way I interoperate with people, because I'm using both, is that I'm multi-homing, right? So I, I have both WhatsApp and iMessage apps, and, and it works for me. I, 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 I don't mind it. But, uh, but the idea here is that uh, um, something is uh, happening uh, to me that, uh, that is not good, that I have to multi-home, and, uh, uh, and I should have one app to rule them all that would uh, connect me to everyone who uses uh, the WhatsApp network or the iMessage network. The problem with that, and, and uh, if someone's interested in it, I recommend there is a great new paper by a very respected Cambridge University uh, computer security specialist, spe specialists um, who uh, show this very well, um, that uh, this idea that you can do this while protecting user security and privacy is a bit of, uh, of wishful thinking given the current operational and technological reality. So uh, so we have this Article 7 where it says, on one hand, well, you have to get this done, but on the other hand, this this uh, um, uh, that's my favorite provision, where it says that the level of security, including end-to-end -end encryption, um, that the gatekeeper provides to its own end users shall be preserved across the interoperable services. So the idea is that this is this is meant to be done, but it has to be done in a way that doesn't lower the current level of security, and that's pretty much impossible right now. Uh, and uh, and it seems like this is going to be impossible in the time frame where, when those laws are meant, uh, meant to come into force. So so either the, this provision, the safeguard provision, will be watered down uh, and will just not be treated seriously, or uh, there will be some some sort of a delay. Uh, or perhaps uh, somehow magically the problems will be resolved, but that's probably the least likely uh, scenario in the time frame, which is next year. Got it. And so just, just to clarify there, so the idea being that the interoperability requirement applies to gatekeepers, but companies that don't qualify as gatekeepers because they're too small 
still would participate in that, right? So the two messaging services that this applies to are iMessage and, and WhatsApp. I, I was trying to find Facebook chat numbers while just briefly, but I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't find anything. I didn't break that out. So let's say it's just those two, right? So that means, well, they have to make their services interoperable with anyone that wants to operate on their services, but the opposite is not true, right? So Signal, which I'm assuming doesn't qualify, doesn't have to make its service interoperable for anybody. It can just exist as a standalone service, but it can integrate into iMessage if it so chooses, right? So there's, if you don't qualify, you still get to participate in the interoperability of the main services. Yes. Uh, so uh, that, is, that is a very important clarification that it's meant to, so interoperability is not meant to so be a benefit for the gatekeepers, but for, for those who are not uh, gatekeepers. But the problem right. with that is, of course, that, uh, I mean, maybe this is not obvious, but I think it's it's at least arguable that the gatekeepers, the current gatekeepers or the likely gatekeepers, are the ones who are in a better situation to actually provide this level of security uh, than, so for example, some sort of a startup. Leaving aside signal, because the idea was here also to spur innovation, to allow especially European startups to, uh, you know, to, to compete with, with the gatekeepers. But the problem is that if you have like, two guys in a basement startup, they will not have the information security infrastructure that uh, Meta or, uh, or Google have. Like that's, that's not even in the realm of possibility. So then the question is, do we treat seriously this requirement that the level of security has to be the same or do we water it down if we water it down then where's the limit of watering it down so do we really care about security or not i mean it's it's um it's it, it may sound nice on paper but it will be very difficult to do. right yeah okay so that kind of moving on to the, the dsa so the dsa has a number of implications for online advertising although my personal assessment of the DSA is that it, it is less restrictive and severe than legislation that was proposed here in the U.S., proposed here kind of last session, right? So we had the Banning Surveillance Advertising Act. So can you talk to me about how the DSA will impact the online advertising market? And why, and, and so just kind of at first, um, what will the impact be? And then second, why do you think that is? Why, why would the European legislation be more toned down? Is that just because that's what made it into law? And, and so it, that's what happens through that negotiation process? By definition, or or is there a more radical element in the United States? And keep in mind, the Ban- Banning Surveillance Advertising Act didn't go anywhere, so it didn't get codified into law. Like I would just, it would just be interesting to hear your opinion there because it does feel like that's not what you would expect. So the effect is is uh, the effect uh, we we have uh, because of those trial uh, negotiations, and and it is the case that some participants of those negotiations tried to push for things uh, like um, uh, prohibition on targeted advertising, right? So uh, the, what's called profiling. And and uh, if I'm not mistaken, we have that, but only for minors. Right. So, yeah. so this was a big debate, which ended up uh, scaled back to just the uh, just, uh, uh, issue of uh, minors. And we don't have a we don't have a broader prohibition of of, uh, of targeted advertising. That's uh, that's true. So so I think that's just a in a sense a testament to uh, to, to some pragmatism in even in the European uh, political process that it just uh, uh, everyone thought this would this would uh, not everyone but 
and the majority of would go to pharmaceuticals. So that's the reason. I think it's it's probably worth noting <laughs> that the, I think the D, the probably more the DMA, but the, the DMA and the DSA were like the most aggressively lobbied, you know, pieces of legislation in in yeah. EU history, maybe after the GDPR. So yeah, I think there's there's probably some some influence in that in that respect. But I, I mean, I guess it's it's just that you know these negotiation process is by its very nature moderating, right? And so yeah. you, you do get some of the the more extreme edges. Yeah shave down a little bit. But um, can you talk to me about like, so what are those impacts, right? So the, the, the one is that there's a, a full ban on targeting advertising to minors, right? You just, you can't, you may not do it, right? And I, I think for the most part, that's uncontroversial. I, I think most reasonable people would agree with that. The question was going into this, how this prohibition would be determined, right? So the question was, well, do you have to know with full credibility that this person is not a minor? before you can target ads to them, or if you know they're a minor, then you may may not target ads to them any longer on the basis of them being a minor, right? And so the former would be very restrictive. The former would, in effect, be a total ban on targeted advertising because you'd have to know with full confidence that someone's not a minor before you could target ads to them. And that's very difficult to do, right? How could you know that? You could put up... On internet. Right. And, and then the the latter is 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 more loose and i think that's much more common sense if you know that someone is a minor then you may not target ads to them which i don't you know no one i don't know anybody that would push back on that so that's one restriction but talk talk to me about some of the other restrictions so uh, by the way on this point of minors uh, and advertising the language in the dsa is uh, a word with reasonable certainty so of course i think it will still be um, debated well what does that mean exactly but moving, moving onwards uh, from, uh, from advertising, we do have uh, some, uh, a, a gen- generic prohibition on dark patterns uh, in Article 25, although at the same time the DSA states that legitimate practices, for example, in advertising that are otherwise in compliance with union law, are not to be considered as dark patterns. So that's, that's a, also a question of uh, it's uh, we have and it's just uh, one example of what we will see over and over again, which uh, which is that we have somewhat gen- uh, vague terms, and it will really be up to the authorities and the courts uh, to to determine what what they are meant to uh, to, to mean uh, in practice. So so we do have uh, that pattern, uh, a provision in that patterns, uh, and uh, we have provisions. Uh, on algorithmic uh, uh, transparency, uh, so, um, which uh, so this is entitled recommender system transparency, which uh, which we can uh, we discuss later. We have we have uh, provisions on um, on labeling of advertising that commercial uh, communication should be labeled as commercial communication. This is not new in uh, EU law, um, and and then we, and then we have. Uh, Additional online advertising transparency for very large online platforms, where we we'll have those open databases of information about uh, currently running or or uh, ads from the past year for for very large platforms. Mm-hmm. And then probably the last thing we can we could also discuss is is the uh, data access uh, regime, where researchers uh, will be able to get access to perhaps internal databases, maybe not live production databases, but some sort of copies of the databases uh, or code bases of, of, uh, 
of very large online platforms, and that may also be used to scrutinize uh, um, advertising, uh, the advertising ecosystem. So, so that's not clear exactly how that will be used, but it may have some impact. Right. And so I think the my takeaway from these requirements and, and stipulations is that they mostly apply to the relationship between the ads platform and the consumer, right? So a lot of this is who targeted me, what parameters can be used to target target me, what parameters were used to target me for this specific ad, what ads are being shown by this advertiser right now? Can I go look through that? By the way, Google just announced that they're going to introduce that soon. So most likely in, in preparation for becoming compliance. But then, and then also like, the, and, and then the other piece is the, the relationship between the platforms and regulators, right? So algorithmic transparency, uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, tw- Twitter's uh, algorithmic transparency was very interesting <laughs> to see, to see all the, uh, the, pre- the uh, privileges for Elon literally hard coded, <laughs> not even using like an, uh, a user ID, but uh, anyway, so I guess we'll get is that or <laughs> just is Elon. So I guess we'll get that for Facebook and maybe there's a, a similar is, is Zuck trigger there. But nonetheless, that, that's more the relationship between regulators and the ad platforms. There wasn't a whole lot in my mind in the DSA that applied to the relationship between advertisers and platforms, but we'll talk about that in a second. Can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm curious what you think about this Article 39 or on additional online advertising transparency, where we'll have uh, those compulsory open databases because uh, of uh, information about advertising, where you have... Uh, content of the advertisement, like who paid for it, who, uh, and uh, all the targeting criteria. Um, I Not the price, not here, but uh, uh, but the information who paid, um, which if it's not the same uh, entity as who's uh, being advertised. But, uh, but this is meant to be available through APIs. So it's not uh, just for users, right? If it's, an, if it's right. a tool available through APIs, then it seems like uh, I think the idea was that this is is going to be used by researchers, but my first intuition was that this is going to be used primarily by the industry. So you will will probably very quickly have products that uh, tell you what your competition is doing uh, in terms of if you're an ad agency or if you're just a client, right? So I, I can imagine those products being developed very quickly, right? So I wonder if you think this will have any impact. You're right. I agree that the main consumer of this information will be practitioners. They will be operators, yeah. right? I think the use case is intended for researchers and regulators, but I think that the primary consumers will be the operators. And I think that's demonstrably true now because Facebook has the Facebook ads library, right? It doesn't provide a whole lot of data. And what it's primarily used for now is just looking at what ad creatives your competitors are running, right? And the problem with it is that it reduced the time to ubiquity. Right. So if I have an ad and I've been running it for a while, that's a pro- by proxy. That's a signal that it, it it's a performing ad. Um, and so as soon as that is the case, all my competitors will copy it like pixel for pixel almost. And that's, you know, one kind of downside. I think the, the upside is much more substantial. It's being able to just just having a lot of transparency in what ads are being run. But no, you're totally right. The API will be uh, ingested by tool, probably tools that companies subscribe to to just get, you know, instant alerts of when their competitors are running ads. And then all the all the new data that is mandated to be made uh, available as well, right? Because with Facebook ads library, you don't really get, to, you get to see like kind of spend levels, um, but you don't get to see like spend amount and stuff like that. You have to do, a, you have to make a lot of assumptions about how much 
money's been spent so by we these. We don't have spend amounts here. We have numbers of like some basic stats: the number of users reached, uh, aggregate numbers broken down by uh, EU member states. But I don't think we have spend here. So that's yes, yeah, so, that's yeah, so the view counts are also bucketed on Facebook now. So mm-hmm. you don't you don't get to know like exact view counts. So that could be used as a proxy for spend, right? Oh, okay. I see. This will be just it'll be used tactically by operators and it also yeah. probably will be used, you know, to some degree by regulators and researchers. Yeah. Well and it will not be just Facebook, but all of those yeah, uh, right, exactly. you know, providers that uh, yeah. that get classified as VLOPs. Okay, so we talked about the DSA's application to online advertising. You send me a bunch of interesting potential points in the DMA or points in the DMA that also apply to online advertising. Can we walk through through those too? You sent me kind of four. And the point you made in the email when you sent them, this is very much going to be a question of enforcement, right? In ter- yeah. interpretation, because you could you could make the case on all of these that this could be the end of the world or this is no big deal, right? So I think it's exactly. all. But let's just walk through those. So the first one actually goes back to uh, to our first uh, topic today. So Meta's move uh, to a legitimate interest because uh, Article 5.2 says that, and of course, again, I'm just assuming for the sake of argument that, for example, Facebook will be uh, covered as a core service, as a gatekeeper, which may also be litigated, but let's assume. So what, what Article 5.2 says is that the gatekeeper should not process personal data for the purpose of advertising, relying on uh, otherwise than using consent. Uh, and... Uh, so it excludes the possibility of using contractual necessity or legitimate interest. So in a sense, the, this whole big debate and the uh, Irish investigation and so on, it's, it's, it's being made moot uh, by the DMA. Um, uh, so, yes, so, so I'm guessing that, uh, that Facebook will, will, will have to, um, to adjust to it, assuming that it's designated a gatekeeper. But that's an interesting sort of resolution to and kind of a coda perhaps to, uh, to our pre- uh, first conversation. So you have to use consent. It's almost like the e-privacy directive. Um, right. And so that's the first one. The second one is in the same article, uh, Article 5.9, then we have a provision that's meant to regulate gatekeepers uh, uh, who, uh, who uh, offer online advertising services. And, and this deals with information that the gatekeeper should provide advertisers or third parties authorized by advertisers, so I guess ad agencies. And, and so here there, there are requirements on, um, on information on a daily basis, free of charge concerning each advertisement, uh, advertisement sorry. And, uh, and the question is, so not being a practitioner, I, it's not easy for me to judge whether those letters A, B, C here, whether they introduce much of a novelty. So what, uh, so what we have here, price and fees paid by that advertisers, including deductions and surcharges for each uh, relevant online advertising, and then remuneration received by the publisher, including any deduct- deductions and surcharges, and finally metrics on which of uh, the uh, how the prices, fees, and remunerations are calculated. So I know that the European Commission justified those provisions saying that this kind of transparency in the ad eco- ecosystem is not yet, uh, well, it's, uh, that's not uh, the current situation, but but I w- I'd be curious what, uh, what, what do you think and uh, what other experts uh, in the field think, whether this is really new or this is just something that's already uh, provided. Well, no. So... 
this is the crux of the DOJ suit against Google, right? Mm -hmm. This is all opaque. And especially so, I mean, this this could be a totally separate topic, right? But, you know, you've got the publisher payouts, which I don't know if you read the DOJ case, but a lot of that had to do with Facebook adjusting the bid on the advertiser's behalf, right? And so, and if you were saying if that bid was going to an external service, they could adjust it, right, to make the bid on its own service more competitive, right? And all of that happened without really any ability for an outsider to know its certainty that it was happening. I mean, there was an understanding that it was happening. I mean, and, and that's why, you know, kind of publishers reacted by changing the bid floors for different networks, right, to, to try to move more of their impressions to be served by non-Google entities, right? So there's there's an understanding that that was happening under the hood, but the sort of the DOJ made, you know, they've shown a, a, a spotlight on that. But but no, there is no law that requires that. And, and I think this could be, I mean, this will just make, I think this will put a lot of price pressures on, you know, ad tech middlemen, right? I think it, it'll be, it'll be apparent just how much of a rake they're exercising, right? And then it'll just become competitively advantageous to, to charge less. Right. I charge less, I get more business. Right. And so I think this will have an impact. But yeah, this this is kind of the heart of the DOJ case. And we have it, uh, by the way. So I just mentioned the Article 5.9, where the gatekeeper providers ad- provides advertisers with information. Mm-hmm. But Article 5.10 does the same for uh, publishers. So gatekeeper, right. uh, so it talks about gatekeepers providing information to publishers, including information on the price paid by the advertiser. Right, so you right. get uh, transparency from both sides of, of this uh, uh, relationship. That's, uh, that's what, it, uh, what Article 5 says specifically about, uh, about advertising. Yeah, so it's just kind of the, the, the other side of the coin there. And then we have Article 6, which is, uh, so I'm not going to, to go into too much into detail, the differences between Articles 5 and 6, but uh, but, but uh, Article 6 also has some uh, interesting potential duties that will uh, may be imposed on, on, on the gatekeepers. So beginning with Article 6.10, here we have uh, some, uh, a provision that doesn't speak uh, about advertising directly, but uh, it, it seemed to me that it could be relevant because it talks about gatekeepers and their business users. And if you're an and so if you advertise through a gatekeeper service, or then you're a business user of that uh, gatekeeper service. So what is this meant to, to do? This is meant to give those business users a right to get for free uh, with this, uh, high quality, continuous and real-time access to uh, and use of uh, all data, including personal data, provided or generated in the context of the use of the services. So, and, uh, so the point is, uh, that any uh, any data that's generated by you or by the users uh, with whom you're interacting through that platform is meant to be uh, to be made available to you for free in a, through an API continuously and so on. Um, so that's uh, it, it, and this is one, an example of this provision that, uh, as you said, it could be a revolution or it could be. Could be a bit of a nothing burger, so it's uh, it, re- it will really depend on, on how this is interpreted in practice. But uh, but it seems to me that at least there is a possibility that this could uh, change something in terms of uh, you know, data access. Right. So let me let me just kind of run all those back to to make sure that yeah. um, I'm clear and hopefully to, to clarify for the for the audience too. So there we've got kind of four articles slash sub articles here that are relevant, right? So the first is Article Five Two, which yeah. basically says, and, and here's where I, I may 
maybe off in my interpretation, but but my read on this is is this is essentially codifies ATT into law, right? This says you must receive consent for using third party data for the provision of advertising services. So that that doesn't apply to first party. That's only yes. third party. You should have said that. You're absolutely correct. That this is different from our first case in the sense that uh, our first topic today that it's third party versus first party. Yeah. Right. So so five two essentially is legal ATT. This is ATT is a yeah. law now. You yeah. must get consent if you're going to collect that third party data for ad targeting. The second article slash sub article is is five nine, which which just mandates that these platforms offer up some kind of minimal level of transparency. It sets it sets the minimum standard for transparency that platforms must offer to advertisers around pricing and fees paid. 510 does the same for publishers, right? Yeah. So it, it establishes this minimum standard of transparency. And then 6, 10 through 12 says that generated data generated by the advertiser or the people that interact with the advertiser's ads in the advertising use case, it might apply to other use cases, but in the advertising use case, uh, that the data that's generated through the use of the platform for advertising must be, be made available to the advertisers. They understand what the effect of their advertising was with more transparency. It seems like this is what, uh, what, what, this, uh, what, what, what the effect of Article 16 would be. But by the way, we, we still have uh, Articles 6, 11, and 12, which are, which are slightly different. They still have a bit, uh, um, they are not the same, uh, they're not just extending Article 6, 10. Um, because Article 6, 11 talks about uh, providing um, information uh, to um, online search engines. Um, um, sorry. So if you're running an online search engine, and that's that's a gatekeeper, and it's obvious which ones uh, or which one uh, is, is meant here, uh, then you, are, uh, you have a duty to provide information on individual level qu qu query, click, and view data uh, from that search en engine. So I wonder if, if that's going to um, to affect uh, the ad business, at least in, in the sense that it will be an interesting uh, source of information for um, for you know ad researchers, uh, marketing researchers, right? So mm -hmm. uh, this will be query, click, and view data. The problem is, of course, that it says that personal data should be anonymized, it's, and it's very difficult to think how queries uh, which often very uh, you know, betray personal data. Uh, how can you anonymize it? But well, that's uh, just one of those contradictions in the in the DNA. Right. So that's eleven, and then twelve. Here, uh, just uh, that's uh, just a general front uh, requirement for. So whenever a gatekeeper is providing its uh, services to business uh, users, um, or or uh, yes, but that's. Uh, and it's uh, not just limited to application stores, but it's uh, but it's uh, also uh, for online search engines. So I wonder if you know if uh, if that could uh, also extend to advertising, but perhaps not. So so that uh, that I'm, I'm not sure about. But uh, these two are are also um, separate from six ten. Got it. So okay. So these are the these are the kind of four articles from the DMA that two articles and yes. Yeah, so, so the, the four points from the DMA that impact the, the advertising space, we talked about the different aspects of the DSA that impact the advertising space, but these bills were not targeted at advertising, right? Advertising is one behavior that these laws are designed to regulate, but there are a whole other uh, use, a whole bunch of other use cases that these laws will regulate, right? Obviously the provision of an app store, right? That is 
going to have a, a the, the DMA will have a tremendous impact on on the app economy uh, with respect to who can run a store and how the store can be operated. And we've already seen some companies prepare for that eventuality, right? We heard Microsoft say two weeks ago that when the DMA goes into effect, they will launch a game store on iOS and Android. They're going to do that. Um, I speculated two weeks ago, what would happen if Meta did that, right? If Meta did that and they ran the store and they and your ads clicked through to their store, they would have kind of full chain of custody uh, throughout that uh, user journey and then they'd be able to use that data for ads. So I think there are kind of myriad ways that the DMA will upset the status quo as it stands now. Now, obviously that's just in Europe, right? The applicability is just for Europe, but we'll see We'll see what other sort of like, uh, you know, American legislation regulation follows in the DMA and DSA's footsteps. Okay, so we talked about the different ways in which these laws will apply to different use cases. We talked about what these laws are. Let's talk about how these laws get enforced, right? Because that to me is potentially the biggest question here. Like when we know what the laws say now, we could probably guess how they're interpreted, right? Or or with what level of vigor they're they're interpreted. How do they get enforced, right? How, how does the EU team up or staff up a team of sufficient size with sufficient domain expertise to police this, right? Especially when you talk about like algorithmic transparency and you talk about some of the elements from the DSA that pertain to like, what is um, essentially IP? It's it's IP for those companies, right? You know, this has been developed over years and years and years, and and these companies recruit extensively uh, from PhD programs for you know their marketing science divisions and and their ad platforms. How, how does the EU enforce this? So, depending on, on your perspective, if, uh, if if you are in the European Commission, then I think the official official line is that they are ready for it. That uh, they are now hiring. I think they announced that they will hire a hundred full-time staff uh, in the, one of the directors general um, in the DG Connect. To and uh, those uh, those people will be involved in uh, enforcing and and, uh, and studying uh, issues related to the DSA and the DMA. Uh, so so this will be one DSA DMA task force. So so, yes, so the official story is that this will be. Uh, this will be sufficient, and this will uh, allow the Commission and, uh, to achieve the, the goals. Um, of course, there are critics who think that uh, this is not enough, uh, that uh, still even 100 staff will uh, will leave the enforcers at a very significant imbalance vis-a-vis um, -vis the companies uh, that they deal with, and, uh, and also uh, given that so possibly that this is not a such a large number, given that there are so many different nuances to to all those obligations. That it could be that many uh, sort of having uh, sensible guidance will will have more litigation. So there is that risk, right? So uh, depending on your position, it, you know, it could, you could see it as a as the commission being ready or as the commission being understaffed and and not prepared for uh, for that task. So. Uh, so there are definitely two views on that. And uh, in terms of what the Commission is meant to do, uh, the Commission, uh, under the DSA, the role will be a bit like under the GDPR, although with, uh, so there will uh, be national authorities, national so-called digital services coordinators, so not DPAs, but DSCs, and um, uh, each country will designate a, a DSC authority uh, for, for for itself, 
But the Commission, unlike in the GDPR, will have a bit more investigative, direct investigatory authority over those very large online platforms. And that was a bit of a compromise because uh, uh, so one uh, one argument was that the Commission should have uh, much broader investigatory authority uh, to avoid the kind of problems that the GDPR uh, is uh, is uh, according to some has. But uh, so that's the compromise that there is there is a split, uh, somewhat split competence, and the Commission gets those very large platforms, and then fines. Um, uh, so here we have six uh, percent of obviously the world uh, worldwide um, the worldwide turnover total worldwide turnover six percent up to six percent. So that's a DSA, and the DMA uh, fully enforced by the Commission uh, with fines for non-compliance uh, in first instance up to 10% of total worldwide turnover, 20% up to 20% on repeated offenses, and uh, and even a provision in Article 18 that if there is systematic non-compliance that the Commission may implement uh, acts um, to order uh, behavioral or structural remedies. So something like divestiture or yes, there's some sort of functional um, functional remedy. So that's that will be. Uh, so yes, the fines are very high, and that is uh, sort of something we're used to under the GDPR. And and then we have this additional um, under the DMA additional tool of um, behavior and structural remedies. Yeah, it's interesting because if you look at the case of Twitter open sourcing the algorithm, right? I mean that was combed through in a matter of hours by tens of thousands of people, right? And yeah. and all of that, all of that insight was surfaced very, very quickly, right? Yeah. Because essentially you syndicated the job of combing through the algorithm to to tens of thousands of people who are very interested in it, right? And and little little pieces were just sort of trickling through my timeline within minutes, right? They began trickling through. within minutes, people were finding really interesting stuff. I wonder why they didn't take that approach because I mean obviously it's difficult to do that with some things that are, you know, truly trade secrets, right? That are, that are, yeah, actual intellectual property. But some of this, I mean, the algorithm, you could argue that it, it needs to be public. You can make the argument that it needs to be public so that people understand how their feed is curated, right? And in a sense, it's not, I mean, I, I suppose you could consider it to be a trade secret, but you could test the different combinations of these parameters so readily that I don't know that in effect it is, right? Yeah. So if I wanted my algorithm to behave like TikToks, I could just test a bunch of different... Now, I could test the, the sensitivity of content to various pieces of feedback from users. Now, th to my mind, when you look in the Twitter algorithm, the real trade secret is the ability to make those predictions, right? It's because okay, if we, if we predict that um, this is going to happen, then then we apply these rules, right? Like that was... Th it wasn't based on observed outcomes. It was based on predicted outcomes right the ranking and so my sense is like that is the real ip that's the real the product the algorithm is just sort of like a thin layer of logic on top of that and so if you have a, a dsa or sorry a, you know a european commission that is just woefully understaffed to actually uh interrogate what's in these systems right and that's you know the dsa says you know we'll we'll make this uh data we'll give you have to we mandate that you make the data accessible and and the, the algorithms accessible to vetted researchers 
right? That seems to be the stuff of conspiracy theories, right? Then you're going to get a whole bunch of people saying like, oh, what do they know? Why not just make it all open? I mean, that the algorithm is, if it's all open, everyone can just kind of peek into it. I was kind of curious about that because I think, especially, I don't know, it just, it just feels like vetted researchers, well, there's this shadowy, you know, uh, association of, of people that get the access and other people don't. And what do they do with it? I, I, I just, I would just assume you'd want to sidestep that question completely, but, but they didn't do that. Yes, no, that, that's true. But uh, I mean, aside from trade secret issues and intellectual property issues, there there, there are also questions because uh, the algorithm is is one th- is one thing. But what if uh, at least partially the algorithm is not really what Twitter just uh, published, but it's a it's a um, machine learning model which may. Perhaps I don't know, but uh, theoretically, it could include some, for example, personal data, and then you could have issues of, uh, of also um, uncovering personal data if you um, if you publish that. So, I mean, that was, of course, it's also an, an effect of, of, of the negotiations, and uh, and this is uh, this is also a compromise that uh, that we and um, that we ended up with. But uh, but uh, I, I see I see what you're saying that perhaps. Uh, at least for some algorithms, it would have been it would, uh, it would have been more effective just to uh, to have uh, sunlight. But uh, yes, but there, there are those uh, there are those problems. So you just you know, kind of we can finish on this. So, so the FTC just announced a, a program where they were going to hire some number of technologists, and I think it was a pretty substantial number of, of people they want to hire. Now the the, the EC is doing the same thing to enforce these laws that are they're going to affect very soon. How will they will they be able to accomplish that? Do you feel like there are... Uh, so I was talking to someone the other day and, and they said, look, I think a lot of people would love to go and work for the FTC for a couple of years um, because after they do, they'll have, uh, you know, sort of a, a deep understanding of how that, you know, organization functions and could be very useful inside of big tech, right? So you go and you, you sort of, you've got this very marketable skill set. You, you know, you take it to the FTC, you probably take a cut in pay, but after that, these big tech companies would be tripping over themselves to hire you because you'd have an insight that that they don't really have which is how these uh, how these organizations function. So do you, do you see that happening in Europe is will there be a lot of people that say you know what I'm totally willing just and and I understand some people would do it just because they feel like it's it's a duty or obligation I'm not discounting that right but I'm talking about the people for the people that are purely motivated by money this actually could be a pathway to making more money. That's a possibility, but uh, so I, I, I don't know how this uh, recruitment process is going for the European Commission. Where there, there, uh, I did see some announcements, but they, but I think all of them uh, were related to uh, officials from uh, national authorities, so high-ranking officials from national authorities or national governments joining the Commission. So people who uh, worked on those files on the negotiations and now being uh, scooped by, by the commission to work, but, but we're talking about officials, so bureaucrats or politici- politicians or political oper- operatives rather than uh, technologists. So, so yes, it, it is an interesting question whether the commission will be able to capitalize on that effect. That I, I'm, sh- I'm sure is is, is real, um, what, what you just suggested. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if they managed to, to, to get some good technologists as well, but... Uh, but for now, it seems to be, at least from public announcements, seems to be mostly um, uh, former officials. Got it. Mikuai, this was, again, a very fascinating discussion. I'm sure it will be as well received as the, the first was. 
please tell the audience where they can find you, how they can engage with you, how they can reach you. So you can follow me on Twitter at mbatchentevich, like my, like my name. I'm sure there will be a link, so that's probably easier than me pronouncing it. That, that's right. I'll include a link in the show notes. Mikwai, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you.